If you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 11. You know, sometimes I ask, how are you doing? And I'm kind of nervous to ask it. That was great. So I'm doing great now that I'm here with you uh, and we're worshiping the living God. Um, If you're just joining us, I know kind of a new year, people are trickling in. Um, Last week, we kicked off our series in the final week of Jesus's life. And um, we looked at, uh, the day we looked at last week was Sunday. We saw what happened when Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem to great fanfare. Um, But what we said last week is that fanfare is not going to last, that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to do some things that this crowd will find surprising, and that's what we're going to see as we continue on in the story today. Today we'll be uh, looking at Monday and then eventually Tuesday of Passion Week. Um, And what we get in our text today is another example of Mark's famous sandwich technique, where he will take one story and insert it in the middle of another story, uh, so think about how this works. So you've got uh, the bread, the top layer, um, enhances your experience and understanding of the, the meat in the middle, and then the bottom layer just brings it all together, holds it all together. Um, I don't know about you, I'm a big carb guy. Like, I don't eat a lot of meat without carbs. So if you've got a tasty meat and a carb, we'll call that a meal in my house, at least with me. Karen's probably horrified right now. Uh, so I really like this literary technique, regardless of your food preference. So this is what's going on in our text. We're going to see um, a story about a tree, and then there's going to be a story about the temple that gets inserted in the middle of that story, and together what these stories are going to do is they're designed to tell you and me about our life and how Jesus wants to meet us today. Are you ready? All right. Mark chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 12. It says this, on the following day, When they came from Bethany, he, that is Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So here's the top layer of our sandwich, and it's kind of a a strange layer. Uh, Here's the story. Jesus is walking along with his disciples. We saw last week he's come to the city of Jerusalem, but he's staying just outside in Bethany, so they're going to kind of come in and out of the city every day. And uh, so he's walking into the city with his disciples, and Jesus is hungry. Um, Sometimes I think we're so um, focused on the divinity of Jesus, which is good and right, but sometimes we forget about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man, and what Mark reminds us very often is that Jesus experienced the fullness of what it means to be human. Jesus got hungry. He experienced his blood sugar getting low. Some of you are like, I love Jesus more already. I didn't realize he gets me like this. So Jesus is hungry, and he sees a fig tree off in the distance, and there's leaves on it. Now, um, Mark points out it's not summertime, um, which is when the season for full figs would come. Uh, We know from what we saw last week, it's Passover week. And so um, this would place this story somewhere in April or around May. But uh, when a fig tree has its leaves and it's coming into bloom in the spring, um, it produces these little knops called pagim. Uh, And they're apparently tasty. Uh, You'll find this in uh, your worship guide online. You can look it up. Isaiah talks about how people love to eat these, kind of the the first fruit of the tree. It's not the main fruit of the tree, but it's a really tasty fruit that would nourish people, that would give them calories. And so Jesus, he is hungry. His blood sugar is low. He sees a tree in the distance. It's in leaf. And so he thinks, okay, I'm going to go to this tree and I'm going to get some of these pagums and it's going to nourish me. It's going to be a tasty tree. It's going to bring me calories. But when he gets up to the tree, uh, what he sees is there's no fruit on it. It's a lie. It's a deceptive tree. And so what Jesus does is he curses the tree. Now, uh, this is admittedly a strange story, right? Like, particularly for those of us living in California. Um, When we moved into our house here, uh, we had this awful tree in our front yard. Um, Like a 30-foot liquid amber tree. This tree was awful. It just spit spike balls everywhere. It clogged my drain. It didn't produce any tasty fruit for us to eat. What it would do is rip up the sidewalk. This is not a good tree, at least not in my view. If, if, if I've offended some of you, I, I do apologize if you have one. I'm, I'm no fan, so I wanted to get this thing out of my yard. My neighbor who has three thought I was a hero, by the way. He said, good luck. I said, what do you mean, good luck? 
I you know, the problem was it's 30 feet. You can't go out there with a chainsaw, or at least I can't. Some of you are like, come on, you could have done it. You can't go out there with a chainsaw. So I hired a company, and I said, can you take this out? My neighbor seems a little skeptical. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, we could take it out if you get a permit. I didn't realize that was the joke. It is a joke trying to get a permit to cut down trees in this area. Like, we love our trees in California, and there's probably some great reasons that it's difficult to do that. I'm not here arguing for any one policy. I'm here to observe that we really like our trees in California. That when I'm filling out the paperwork, this is like when we're filling out adoption paperwork. I'm like, good grief, this is lengthy. Like, they wanted me to get counseling to be like, uh, did the tree hurt you? What happened? Like, I'm like, is that what coming next, the counseling form? I don't know. It was very in-depth, but after a long process, finally got the city's permission to take down that tree to the glory of God so our daughters can play free and not have spike balls. Anyway, I've still got something for this tree. Apparently, I'm still harboring. The point is this. We love our trees in California. And so Jesus cursing anything, I think, is just generally difficult for us. Um, But particularly, Jesus cursing a tree. This is a story that reads very difficult in California. And so I just want to ask the question. This is what you should do when you come to something difficult in the Bible. You should ask, what's going on here? Uh, We know God is good. We know Jesus is the life giver. But this seems a little strange. And um, to answer that question, I would say, let's do a little Bible trivia. What is the first command God gives us in the Bible? Uh, love the Lord your God, uh, and then I heard something from back here. No gods except for him. Yes, these are, Jesus would say, uh, these are the most important commandments to love the Lord your God. Uh, But actually the first command we get on page one of the Bible, we should do a sermon series on this, uh, is uh, to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, This is what God tells us. Page one is, and and again, it's very important to know that we should love God, but before we get to all of that, just basic worldview formation is that we learn on page one that there's one creator. He made everything, and that creator's posture towards us is he's a blessing God. He says, be fruitful and multiply. What we learn about God from page one on is that he wants to see his creation be fruitful. He wants to see his creation fulfill the purpose for which he created it. So that means that the sun is meant to produce light, that dogs are meant to produce joy and life, uh, that cats are meant to produce um, God only knows what, but they have a purpose, I think. Um, and, and, and trees, uh, fig trees are meant to produce fruit for people to eat and to be nourished and to give life. See, this is what God wants. He wants his creation to be fruitful and to multiply. And Jesus, when he walks up to this tree that's in leaf that should have pagum on it, is not fulfilling the purpose for which it was made, is not being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, Jesus curses the tree. He pronounces judgment over it. He says, if you will not be true to your purpose, you have no reason to exist at all. I made you to give life and fruit. And if you're not going to be true to that purpose, what do you exist for? And this whole thing, this strange top layer of the sandwich, it's all setting up the story that's going to happen next in the temple. Because it's not just the tree that's failing to be true to its purpose. We'll continue on. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So you've got this strange story about Jesus judging a fruitless tree. And then we get to the meat of the sandwich, where Jesus enters the temple. Now, um, it's difficult to overstate the importance of this moment. Um, the temple was really the center of life in Jewish society. And to understand why, you have to understand uh, how temples functioned in the ancient world. Uh, See, what a temple is, is it's the place where heaven meets earth. Uh, And in every ancient culture, they had temples. 
Um, and we still have them today. We just call them stadiums. We just have fancier names. But the idea is this is where you go for the good life. This is the thick life. This is things beautiful and amazing happen here. This is a special place here. What's interesting um, about the Bible is, again, if you go to page one of the Bible, what you will see um, is this shocking claim on page one that says that God created the entire cosmos as a temple. What that means is heaven and earth totally aligned. God is present with his creation. And what, uh, what we read in those opening pages um, is that uh, wherever you went, everywhere you went, you were meant to encounter the living God. And from his life and love, you were meant to live a life of true flourishing, of true happiness, of true harmony. This is, again, page one of the Bible. We love page one. It's why we bring it up every week. But then a big problem happened. Sin entered the world. Um, and from that moment on, from the moment sin enters the world, that harmony is fractured. Heaven and earth are now separated. A holy God cannot dwell with an unholy people. Um, but here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. The story does not end there. What happens is God pursues a sinful people. And so God designs this place where atonement can be made. Um, that's just a fancy word for saying that blood could be shed to cover over sin. So God designs this place where um, sin could be forgiven, where unholy people can have their sins washed away and enter into the presence of a holy God and where God's presence could dwell on the earth with his people again. Now, um, it wasn't the whole earth. Uh, because if a holy God dwelled in the entire cosmos, it would wipe us out because we are sinful. But God designed this place in the temple where his presence would dwell, where atonement could be made before you enter in so that you could come into God's presence again. See, the temple is like the Garden of Eden restored. And, and this is why... Um, during a festival like Passover, uh, the population of the city of Jerusalem would swell from um, anywhere around 40,000 or so people, depending on whose numbers, uh, up to 2 million people during this festival. The, the population would swell because you have Jewish pilgrims coming from all over to come and to worship the living God, to enjoy life in his presence. Um, this was a big deal. Life centered around the temple. This would be the highlight of your year to come to the temple. Um, Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, not a Christian guy, a Jewish historian living during this period of history, uh, he gives us an idea of just how busy uh, life would be around the temple during Passover week. He writes this, In 66 AD, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed during Passover week. So 66 AD, that's just a couple decades after what we're talking about here. Same general period. 255,600 lambs were sacrificed during Passover week. Um, and that, that doesn't account for the other animals. You know, the text tells us about those selling pigeons. The whole system for atonement, it was designed to meet people where, where they were at. So for a poor family that couldn't afford a, a lamb, there would be pigeons and things of that nature. And so... <clears throat> excuse me, um, this is a really busy scene. This is um, animals. I mean, just think about the noise. Think about the smell of all these animals. Um, these are uh, animals being killed on the altar, sacrificed. This is a busy, congregated place. But this is what it took to enter into God's presence is God made him available. Now, this presented a lo uh, logistical problem for the people. Um, if you're coming from a great distance away to come to Jerusalem, well, um, it would be difficult to get an animal all that way, right? Like, they didn't have cars, they didn't have planes, they didn't have trains, they didn't have automobiles. They were, uh, many families walking, or if you were really well off, you had a donkey or something. But getting an animal there would be difficult. And so what ended up happening is um, local vendors would... Um, raise animals all year long and come Passover when there was this need for hundreds of thousands of animals, they'd be like, hey, you could just buy it from us. Problem solved. And this is the scene that Jesus walks into. He walks into the temple and, and he sees all of this going on, the buying, the selling, the noises, and he, he's not happy. Uh, he walks into the temple and um, 
I want you to picture the scene. It says he flips over the tables where they're exchanging money for animals. He flips over the tables. Um, he drives out those who were selling. Uh, John in his gospel tells us that he made whips to do this. So he flips over the tables. He's flipping over furniture, probably knocks some people over in the process, right? He's cracking whips. You think he raised his voice maybe? Yeah. Jesus is angry. Jesus is angry. Now, some of you, you have no concept for a Jesus like this. Um, some of you, when you think of Jesus, you think of a, uh, a hippie savior who's always happy and never angry. Uh, and I would point this out, is therefore incapable of loving anything. Because if you love anything, you will get angry when that thing is threatened. And um, while hippie Jesus maybe looks really cool in our culture, doesn't judge anyone, doesn't ever get angry, he also doesn't love anyone. And thank God the real, the living Jesus is not like that. The real Jesus gets angry at sin and injustice. And he comes into the temple. In this scene, he flips over tables. He cracks whips. He's screaming at them. And he tells us why. See, here's the thing. I think sometimes we're uncomfortable with the anger of Jesus because we confuse it with the way we get angry. What we see in the New Testament is Jesus um, does not sin in his anger. He does not get angry about stupid stuff that doesn't really matter like you and I so often do. So this isn't Jesus getting cut off in traffic and flipping the birds of the car next to him. Some of you are like, oh, I can do that now. No, you can't. Um, this is righteous anger. This is godly anger. This is anger that is meant to produce life as we continue on in this story. And passivity, sitting back and doing nothing, would be the most wicked thing Jesus could do in this moment. And so Jesus, listen to his own words. If you don't believe me, listen to Jesus' words as to why he is angry. Verse 17. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Uh, Jesus is quoting from two Old Testament prophets here. The first is Isaiah 56, 7. Again, if you want this, this is in the worship guide online. The notes are available there. Um, but the first of the prophets he quotes is Isaiah 56, 7. This is when he says, Isn't it written that my house shall be called a house of prayer? By the way, interesting that Jesus calls the temple my house, stepping in the place of Yahweh. That's um, uh, a very interesting point. I just want to keep pointing out along the way. Jesus knows who he is. It's written that my house shall be called a house of prayer where people can come and have an encounter with the living God. That's what prayer is. It's humans encountering the living God. This is what makes prayer so amazing, so incredible, that in prayer, we finite human beings get to talk to the living God. Jesus says that's what the temple is supposed to be. This is the place where it's supposed to happen, where you're supposed to be able to commune with God. And it's not just a house of prayer. It's a house of prayer for the nations. In other words, uh, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this as well. The temple was always meant to have this centrifugal force. Whereas you come into the temple and encounter the living God and experience his life and love, it would send you out of the temple a more life-giving person bringing the love, the mercy, and grace of Yahweh into all of the places you went all year long. This was always the purpose of the temple, that God dwelled with Israel, not because he only loved Israel and hated the nations, but because he chose Israel to be near to them, and through being near to them, he was going to bless the world, that they would carry that life and love everywhere they went. The temple was meant to reach the nations, but what Jesus is furious about is they flipped it upside down. They have failed on two accounts. They have not uh, worshipped well in the temple, and because they have not worshipped well, they have not reached the nation. So Israel is grieved, and the nations are grieved, and frankly, God is robbed of glory. And this is what we see in the quote, his second quote. So he quotes from Isaiah to say, this should be a house of prayer for all the nations. Don't you know what the temple's meant to be? This is heaven meeting earth. This is the spot you get to talk to your creator. This is supposed to make you a different person being here. But instead of doing that, you've made this place a den of robbers, which is a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and I actually want to read this one so we can just hear these words as Jeremiah originally spoke them. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 7, 9, Will you steal 
murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which I have called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Um, This is written before the exile. Jeremiah is writing to Israel as their society is full of injustice and evil. And God's saying through Jeremiah, um, you're going to sin and celebrate evil. And you're going to say just because you have the temple you think you're going to be okay, it's not going to go down that way. You've made this place a den of robbers. The exile is coming. And that's exactly what came in their history. And Jesus shows up quoting this text to say the exile and all the intervening years between have not humbled you. You are no different than Jeremiah's generation. He says, you've made this place a den of robbers. Some commentators um, will say what Jesus means is that they are price gouging at the tables for the animals. That those selling are charging exorbitant rates and crushing the poor. Um, I think that's actually very likely in light of what we read from Jeremiah, that there is a concern for that kind of injustice. Um, So I do think that's the case. I also think um, that... Uh, it would be missing something if that's all we saw in this story. Because if you read Mark, what he says is Jesus drove out those uh, selling and those buying. So it's not like the rich people are good and bad people are, or poor people are. It's not that rich people are bad and poor people are good, as you often hear in our world today. No, it's all people are sinful. All people need Jesus. The rich people should stop exploiting the poor. But there's a problem with the people buying as well. Jesus drives them out as well. Jesus prevents them from taking their merchandise and taking it into the temple as well, Mark tells us. So let's not be convenient and and just side this on the side that we're not. If you you think you're not rich and you're like, oh, I'm on the poor team. Yeah, this doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it applies to you. And if you're not on the poor team and you're on the rich team, you're like, go get them, pastor. This applies to you. This applies to all of us as well. Jesus drives out those buying and he drives out those selling. And again, I think Jeremiah's text can help us understand why. Um, In Jeremiah's day, their lives outside of the temple are full with idolatry, uh, filled with adultery, filled with lies. Don't you love when the Bible does this, by the way? You'll read a list of sin in the Bible and you're like, adultery? Nope. Murder? Nope. Lies? Dang it! Got me! See, this is what God does. All of this stuff, it's fruit of idolatry. And this is the wrong kind of fruit. This is not the kind of fruit that's meant to grow on humans. This is the kind of fruit that's meant to grow on demons. This is not meant to grow on you and me as God's image bearers. We are meant to bring life. We are not meant to be murderers, adulterers, liars, thieves. These are the fruits of darkness. This is not us being true to our purpose. And so um, their lives on the outside... Um, so, so that's Jeremiah's day. Put it in Jesus' day. You come in, the temple floor, it's busy with all this religious activity, right? On the outside, it looks pretty nice. Look at, look at Chad over there buying his lamb to go sacrifice it. He must love the Lord so much that he's willing to um, spend his money on that lamb to sacrifice it. Everything looks good on the outside, but on the inside, man, Chad doesn't really live for Jesus throughout the year. He, 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 doesn't, he couldn't be troubled to actually bring the lamb with himself. He just does what's convenient. He shows up to church, and if they'll do it all for him, sure, he'll go through the motions. They're no problem whatsoever. This is what Jesus is critiquing, a life that on the outside looks business, busy with religious activity, but our hearts aren't in it. Our hearts can't be bothered to actually respond to God when we're not in the temple. And so what you have going on in the temple, it's, it's essentially fake worship. It's essentially fake worship where um, the people are doing all the things that look good. And, and to be fair to these guys, there's no command that says you cannot sell animals in the temple. Now, I would argue that command's not there because you'd have to be stupid to think it's a good command. Like, there are plenty of things. Like, the Bible doesn't say you can't eat Thai detergent pots. God doesn't have to command everything that would be bad for you. Some things are meant to be common sense and fall under the larger banner of God wants you to have life. And he gives you the Holy Spirit to tell you, Tide Pod's not a good idea. Selling and turning God's temple that's meant to be a place of worship and prayer and communion into this busy marketplace, not a good idea. 
So on the outside, it looks good. They're, 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 they're worshiping, but on the inside, their hearts are not right. They are turning God's temple into a den of robbers. Instead of being this place that shows what God is like to the outsiders, this shows a place of confusion, of greed, of heartless worship that couldn't be bothered to bring the dang animal with you from where you came So on the outside, it looks good. Their hearts aren't in it. And as a result, their lives remain unchanged. The nations remain unreached. And God is not glorified. In other words, the temple has become a lot like the fig tree. It looks great from a distance. It's got all of the leaves on it. There's all the smell of these animals being sacrificed on the altar. And you would think like, wow, worship of Yahweh is going on there. And then you get closer and you walk in and you see this madness going on. And you see, no, that, that was all a lie. It's just like the true where it's, it's just like the tree. It's hypocrisy. It's a lie. It's deceiving. It's fake worship. And this is what makes God, Jesus angry. Because Jesus wants to see his creation be fruitful. He wants to see people come alive in a relationship with God. He wants to see people in the temple praying and talking to their creator and seeing their soul come alive in new ways. He wants to see the nations reach so that the people that don't yet know the name of God could come and find salvation in his name. He wants to see all of these things. But the temple failed to do this. And so just like the tree, Jesus judges the temple. And we'll see more of this when we get to Mark 13. But essentially, he's saying the temple's done. Um, there's going to be not one stone will be left upon the another, another. Jesus has come to inaugurate a new era because this particular temple in Jerusalem, it is not cutting it. The people have again failed and failed and failed. And frankly, church, um, I wonder what Jesus would say about our church today. Um, or or I'll, I'll be real honest with you. Um, I wonder what Jesus would say about my life today. Because here, here's the reality. Like I, I told you last week, I've been frustrated. I've been wrestling with some frustration I've been feeling over a lack of fruit um, that we've been seeing over the last year here. And it's not just we as a church. It's, it's me as a person. I, I didn't lead anyone to Jesus last year. That's not okay with me. I am bothered by that reality. And so I've been wrestling with this. I've been frustrated. I've been talking with the Lord. And as I've been studying this text where I thought I was moving on to a new topic, I really felt the Lord press me. Is my life marked by a deep commitment to prayer? Or am I distracted by a thousand other things? Things that maybe there's no Bible verse against. Like it doesn't say you can't sell in there. But maybe it's not a wise use of my time, of my affections, of my priorities. Has my life been devoted to prayer? Hey, could you call uh, the temple that is Chad Francis a house of prayer? Because here's the reality. We live on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Where according to the New Testament, God does not dwell in one location anymore. But his spirit has been poured out on all believers. This is what Jesus came to do. The temple wasn't good enough. And so the true temple, the true God with us, Jesus Christ comes, he dies, he rises again and says, anyone who will believe in me, your sins can be forgiven. My spirit will come to live in you and that you can be a temple wherever you go. The New Testament says this on repeat, that you are a temple of the living God. Did you know that if you trusted in Christ, your body is a temple of the living God? And the New Testament will also say that corporately when we gather together, that we are the temple of the living God. And so the, I, I've been wrestling with some questions. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, has my life, has the temple that is Chad Francis been a house of prayer for the nations, or has it been distracted by a thousand other things? Um, Am I living into my purpose? Am I producing the fruit that I was designed for, that Jesus died to produce in me? Or am I distracted by stuff that in the grand scheme of things might not be against a Bible verse, but it just doesn't matter? Um, See, if you can resonate with those questions, if you can resonate with um, the desire to go, I don't know. 
If you're feeling the Holy Spirit kind of point you to those questions, as I certainly have this week, well, I would encourage you to pay attention to the bottom layer of the sandwich because this is where the money is at. Verse 20. So we read in verse 19, it had been a long day. So Jesus and his disciples go back to Bethany for the night, and then in verse 20, we pick it up on Tuesday morning, and we read this. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. By the way, withered to its roots means it's not coming back. This thing is dead. This is a miracle, and interestingly, it's the only destructive miracle in all four Gospels. Continues on, verse 22. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So Jesus takes all of this stuff, he takes what happened to this tree, and in classic Jesus form, he turns it into a teachable moment. He turns it into a teachable opportunity. Peter walks by and he's like, Jesus! Look, the tree you cursed died, which I'm just like, Peter, where were you when he calmed the storm? Is this surprising to you by now that Jesus is Lord over nature? Um, But again, that's probably me reading it in hindsight. It's easier, and the gospel authors, I don't know why I'm exonerating them right now, but they will say, hey, we didn't understand these things, but after Jesus raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit came, it all clicked. So don't be too hard on Peter. I don't know why I just went to bat for my boy Peter there, but um, he says, Jesus, the, the tree that you cursed It died. And what Jesus says is, Peter, 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 this is small potatoes. This is small potatoes. You you think this tree, you think me cursing this tree and this tree dying is amazing? And Peter, I'll tell you this. If you say to this mountain, which you got to remember, they're standing on the temple mount. If you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, get out of here, God will fling it away. You just have to have faith in God. Now, here's what's happened. These verses have been so abused, I'm almost afraid to preach on them. Um, People have taken these verses and created false teachings where they will say, if you name it, you claim it. They will say, um, when Jesus says, if you say to this mountain, be flung into the sea and you don't doubt in your heart, you'll get it, that you just need to say, uh, uh, I command a Ferrari to show up in the name of Jesus, and if you sincerely believe it, the Ferrari will show up. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's, it's not. And, and the only r- way to know that, it's, um, there's no tricks here. You just have to read the words in context. So, so you could take a single sentence out of a paragraph and make that sentence say anything. This is why we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, so we can't abuse the scriptures and twist them to our ends. We want to let the Holy Spirit speak to his ends. And I, I would just submit to you, this whole concept of casting the mountain into the sea is not a standalone verse. It comes at the end of a sandwich. And you're abusing it if you try to teach it apart from the sandwich. You're abusing it if you see it's disconnected from what's going on in the temple. And frankly, you end up a lot more like the people in the temple than you might think. So, so let's, let's think about this. This whole sentence has come up in the midst of a story about this tree that's not bearing fruit. And a temple that, like the tree, it looks good from a distance. But when you get close, it's wicked on the inside. The closer you get, it's a lie. It's hypocrisy. It's not a house of prayer. It's a den of robbers. And what Jesus is doing in his teaching on prayer is he is instructing his disciples on how they can avoid this same fate. He's instructing them on how they can genuinely become fruitful people who live into their purpose and enjoy more of God and reach the nations for the name of God and bring God great glory. That's what this whole sandwich is about, is how do we go, how do we avoid the fate of being fake, fruitless, dens of robbers and become fruitful, life-giving humans for the glory of God and the joy of all people? That's the context in which these words come up. And let's look at the words now in light of that context. He says, number one, have faith in God. In other words, fruitfulness 
is not primarily a result of human effort. The way the New Testament will say is it, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So fruitfulness is not ultimately a matter of doing more and trying harder. Like, gosh, haven't you tried that before? Of I'm not seeing breakthrough in my life like I want, so I just need to double down my efforts. Like, we're in the first couple weeks of January. This is where our world is doubling down our efforts on some things. We haven't given up on it yet. What Jesus says is effort is not your primary problem. Faith is. Have faith in God. Believe in God, not believe in you. The Bible doesn't say believe in yourself. You are special. The Bible says believe in God because he loves you and his love makes you special. Have faith in God. So bearing fruit, it's not a result primarily of human effort. It is a result of faith. What faith does is faith draws near to God in prayer. Because is, I believe it is the book of Hebrews is coming to mind right now says, because um, what faith does is it believes that God will answer the prayers of his children. It believes that God is a good father who wants to give good gifts to us. And so what he says is have faith in God. Draw near to God in prayer. He's echoing what he's going to say in John 15, which is John's account of something that happens this week. In John 15, Jesus says it this way. Abide in me and I in you. Is the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, good fruit in our life only comes from a relationship with God. Apart from Jesus, you can produce nothing. Well, what about the iPad? Okay, nothing isn't saying like nothing, nothing. It's saying nothing that matters. Nothing in the grand scope of things people will scream out for all eternity. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm a big Apple guy. Love Apple. I don't think we'll be singing its praises 10,000 years from now. I just don't. And I don't want to give my life to a thousand things that don't matter in the grand scope of things. I want to give my life to something that people will be singing about 10,000 years from now. And that's the stuff Jesus is talking about. That kind of fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that's going to bring people eternal life and impact the world forever, that kind of fruit cannot be born apart from a relationship with Jesus. If you are not abiding, you cannot bear the fruit that you were designed for. As humans, you and I were designed for more than creating little gadgets and stuff. By the way, if you're in tech, I think your tech can be used to accomplish ultimate purposes. So again, not here to dog on Apple. Let's just figure out how to use these devices for the glory of God, like live streaming a service right now. Praise his name, whoever thought that one up. Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you cannot produce fruit. So abide in me. Or the way he says in Mark is have faith in God. Draw near to me. Talk to me in prayer. Apart from prayer, how can you say you're abiding in Christ? Oh, I'm abiding in him. When's the last time you talked to him? Oh, we don't talk. I, I think you might need to look up the definition of the word abide. Have faith in God. And then Jesus says, if you have some mountain in your life, um, which was a common way in Jewish thought of talking about something impossible. Um, if it were Luke Skywalker, he would talk about an X-Wing. Um, three of you got that, thank you. Uh, if you have some mountain in your life, something that seems impossible, that's, it's getting in the way of you drawing near to God. It's keeping you from bearing the fruit that he designed you for. What Jesus says is, Bring that request to God. Talk about that mountain. Tell him, this is in my life. This is keeping me from the fruit that you want me to bear. And I want you to get rid of it. I want you to fling it out of here. Jesus is saying like, man, just like God can move a mountain, just like this temple that the whole world thought was the center of everything will be gone within a generation, so God can move the mountains in your life. And so here, here's what I'll say. Um, Jesus is not encouraging us to pray requests like this. God, there's a certain lifestyle I want to live. And so I need you to give me a better job. I need you to give me more money. I claim it in the name of Jesus. So that if I had more money, then I could reach rich people for you. Because we always try to baptize it in the end, right? Right? This is every prosperity preacher. They need a private jet plane. Why? Oh, to reach the nations, of course. 
This is not the encouragement to pray. There's a lifestyle I want, and I want all of these things, and if I get all these things, I think I could really make an impact for you. No, this, I think what this is meant, what Jesus is encouraging sounds a lot more like this. Um, I've got this brokenness in my life, and, and it's keeping me from you. And, and I, I hate that there's this thing in my story. I hate that there's this thing I, I give myself over to, but I, I, I don't want it to be there anymore. I want you to take this out of me. I want you to heal me. I want you to move this mountain out of me so I can be with you. Because it's keeping me from being the follower that you have called me to be. It's keeping me from bearing the fruit that you've called me to bear. And I don't want to keep me from that anymore. So God, I've tried to conquer this thing so many times. I can't do it. Can you do it? I think that's the kind of thing Jesus is encouraging here. I think additionally, Jesus is encouraging praying that kind of prayer for other people. What Christians have called intercession. Because Jesus will go from talking personally to talking about our relationship with others. And so I certainly think that included in this is not just praying for God to remove the mountains for our lives, but for like Jesus, loving sinners enough to pray that God would move in their life and remove the mountains from their life when they don't even have the strength to pray it for themselves. I think that a prayer like this would look like, God, I love this person so much. I want to spend eternity with them. I want to see, like, they're already so awesome and they don't even know you. I can't imagine how amazing they're going to be when they come alive in a relationship with you. And I know you want this too. Would you save them? Would you grab a hold of their life this year? And if, God, if it would please you to use me, I would be honored to be a part of the process. But God, would you rip that mountain out of their life so that they might come to know you, love you, and produce the fruit you designed them for. These are the kinds of prayers I think Jesus is encouraging. And I think if we think, oh man, I was hoping the Ferrari, you've, you've misunderstood everything I'm saying, because the Ferrari, it's going to burn. But these prayers, people, life, it's meant to go on forever. And, and that's the invitation Jesus here. And then I think this is so interesting. In the midst of all of this, he starts to talk about forgiveness. He says, and, and when you're praying, if you've got, if there's something in your life between you and another person, if you're holding on to resentment, you've got to let that go. You've got to forgive so that your Father in heaven can forgive you. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus just called God your Father. My father. See, um, this is the first time this has happened in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is constantly referred to God as my father, like in the first person, my father in heaven. This is the first time he said God can be your father too in the Gospel of Mark. This is significant. See, um, what Jesus is saying is you have a forgiving father. You have a forgiving father See, because what we see in this story is that fruitlessness grieves the heart of God. Where fruitlessness leads to evil and injustice, God will intervene one day. But what you and I have is a forgiving father. And he does not want to judge us like this tree. He does not want to judge us like the temple mount in Jerusalem. He wants to cleanse us, to forgive us, to make us fruitful temples of the living God. See, you and I have a forgiving father. And what he is interested in is forgiving kids who become true worshipers, whose lives because of the forgiveness afforded to them, begin to overflow with forgiveness and grace and mercy to others that ultimately is connect back to praise for Jesus and what he has done for us. That our forgiveness of others might lead more and more people to coming to enjoy the goodness and grace of God. This is what the temple was supposed to do. It was supposed to be operating as this place of forgiveness where you came and you worshiped God. And as you experienced forgiveness, as you saw the lamb's throat be slit on the altar, as you saw blood pour out, you were meant to understand that God has forgiven me for my sin. And you were meant to praise his name. And you were meant to walk out of the temple a more forgiving person because of the grace and the mercy that has been extended to you because of the shed blood of the lamb. This is what the temple was meant to do, to send Israel out to be a forgiving people in the world. But all of this was lost in their busyness. 
in Jeremiah's day, in Jesus' day, the story is as old as time. And so what God does is he sends his own son, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who dies in our place for our sins so that we can be forgiven once and for all. So I don't know if you know this, but living in the new covenant, Jesus doesn't have to be sacrificed again and again and again every time you and I fail like these lambs would have to be. Because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is able in this moment, we will see at the end of Mark, to make full atonement for all of the sins, for all of the people who will ever believe. Here's what that means. That means if you've trusted in Jesus, it's not just your past struggles he has forgiven. It is your present struggles and the future stuff you haven't even struggled with. You have a forgiving Father who has sent his Son make you his beloved and forgiven son or daughter by faith in Jesus. This is where the whole gospel of Mark is going. And if that's the case, that means there is hope for you and me when we feel fruitless. Because we have a forgiving father. And what that means is the lack of fruit in our life. It is not a result of us needing to clean ourselves up. Maybe if I get my act together, God will bless me this year. Jesus takes that one away from you by saying, no, you have a forgiving father. You just come, you receive his mercy, his grace, and his love, and it's coming in prayer and receiving his mercy, grace, and love as you remember his blood poured out for you on the cross. That is what makes you a new kind of person. That is what makes you a fruitful person. The way Titus will say it is, for the grace of God has trained us to renounce all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It's God's grace to us that does something to us. It's us drawing near. It's us having faith in him. It's not us white-knuckling it and trying harder. It's us coming and experiencing that we have a forgiving father who loves to make forgiven sons and daughters who come alive in his grace and mercy and spread that life wherever they go. And that's the invitation of this sandwich Jesus has given us today. The invitation is, if you feel fruitless, to come this morning. You've got a forgiving Father in heaven. He's not angry at you. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you. He's for you. He has a great purpose for which he designed you for, for which Christ died to make possible. And so the invitation is to come in prayer to your forgiving Father this morning. Um, As we do that, I'm aware that I'm talking to a few different kinds of people. Um, Some of you are not Christians, and and we are glad you're here. Um, I I love you. I'm so glad you're here. What what I will say, because I love you, is um, you need to know Jesus. God created you to come alive in a relationship with him and you will never truly be alive until you repent of your sins and find true and lasting life in Jesus' name. And we want that for you. That's why we've built this place. And you're welcome to come even if you're like, I'm not sure that I'm there yet. You're welcome to be here. We're glad you're here. But I just want to put cards on the table and say, my hope for you is that you meet Jesus this year. We want this for you. We love you. We're glad you're here. But this is where it all begins. It can begin for you today. You can just simply begin by praying, by talking to God. It doesn't have to look magical. You could just say, Jesus, I want your forgiveness. I, I want to be a fruitful person. I want to come alive to my purpose. Would you come into my life and be my savior, be my king? Would you lead me into fullness of life? I think that's a prayer that can change your life today. Um, if you pray that prayer, I would encourage you, please fill out a connect card and drop it at the info desk on the way out because we want to walk with you. You're not meant to do the Christian life alone. So, so I know I'm talking to some non-Christians. I also know... Um, There's some of you here this morning that you are fake Christians. That from a distance, your life looks filled with religious activity. Maybe you've been coming here for years. You even know when to raise your hands during the singing. You know when to say amen if Bernard is here preaching. You know all of the church things. You know a lot about Jesus, but you don't know Jesus. You're you're a lot like the tree where you're full of leaves. You, You look great from the outside, but... But when we get up close, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't pray. You don't talk to him. And and hear me, I I don't want to crush. Some of you are Christians that you just struggle with these things. I'm not saying you struggle. I'm saying there are some of you that you have no desire to do anything more than the religious thing of showing up to church on Sunday. You don't want to know him. You're content where you're at. And what I just want to plead with you this morning is don't be content with where you're at. He has so much more for you. 
than to come to church and pretend something on the outside that you've never known on the inside. And so the invitation for you this morning would be the same, to repent of your sin, to believe that you have a forgiving Father who will give you a new life this morning. And, and then the third group of people I know I'm talking to are Christians who sin, like me. Um, church, I, I sin a lot. I, I don't want to, like, blow your mind as your pastor, but I'm really grateful that I have a forgiving Father in heaven. Um, and, and so if you're like me, by the way, there's no fourth group I'm talking to. This is where it ends. Christians who sin. And then there's dead Christians in heaven who don't sin anymore, but I'm not sure they're listening to me right now. So there with Jesus. They're having a much better sermon this morning. See, there's Christians who sin. And if, if, if you're in that category, what you need to hear is that Jesus is still cleansing temples today. He is still driving sin out of his people's lives and out of his church. Jesus still overturns tables. He still gets angry at the fake things we can do to look good on the outside but not truly know him on the inside. He is still grieved by the ways that we pretend to be more than we are. Jesus is still cleansing tables today. He still wants to come in our life and flip over the areas where we're pretending. He still wants to flip over the injustice in our life. He still will say to us, you can't pass through here. There are some things that I will not let you do in your life. And it's not because he's trying to take something from us. It's because he loves us and he wants to lead us into a greater life. And so the question I think you have to wrestle with if you're a Christian this morning is where does Jesus want to do that in my life? Where does Jesus want to cleanse the temple that is me? What tables does he need to flip in my life that are distracting me from him that would cause me to come to him in prayer with less distraction and more seriousness about encountering the living God in my life? What needs to die in your life this morning so that you can truly live? I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have a time to respond um, for you to talk to God in prayer. And when you're ready, there is communion available in front of you for those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus to remember the shed blood of the perfect lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then we're going to sing his praises. I want to encourage you not to rush out of here, but take this time, respond to God in prayer. Remember the shed blood of Christ and let's sing his praises. God, I thank you that you're a forgiving father. I thank you that you sent your son not to condemn us for our fruitlessness, but to maybe identify some ways that we are um, walking out of step with our purpose. I thank you that you love us enough not to passively sit at heaven and watch us destroy our lives or waste our lives, but that you sent your son to get in the muck and the mire, to get messy, to take on the death owed us so that we could have true life in his name. And so I pray right now that you would send your Holy Spirit um, to help us hear these things where we need to hear them this morning. Would you help us to see where are we really at with you? Where do you really want to meet us? Would you make the temple that is Fair Oaks Church and would you make the mobile temples that is every Christian in this room a more beautiful picture of your love and grace this year? Would you cleanse these temples just like you did 2,000 years ago. Would you cleanse us afresh this morning by making the forgiveness and grace afforded to us in Christ more real? We want to love you more. We want to bear more fruit for you. So we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.